Hi, and welcome to another edition of Tarvalin Talks. I'm Jerry, and I'm joined by Dahl and Fenya. Today, we're starting to cover some of the minor characters in the Wheel of Time series. We'll each be picking out some of our favorites that intrigued us and made us want to dive a little bit deeper into their lives. This is a spoiler-heavy episode, so if you haven't read the entire series, please save this episode and come back to it later. So I think we're going to dive in, and I'm going to go first. Um, so the lesser character, the minor character that I chose was Olivia. And this is A-L-I-V-I-A. Um, she does not show up in this series until Path of Daggers. So much, much, much later in the in the series. But she is, for, the, for those of you who may not remember, because she does show up so late, um, she is a former... Okay, I'm going to say this word. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. So please be kind. <laughs> She's a former Damane. That's how I pronounce it, for what it's worth. It's either that or Damane. I've heard it either way, but I think Damane is the, the probably the closest. Okay. All right, good. So it wasn't too far. Can I have a quick interjection and ask what number is Path of Daggers? Because I don't know book titles. <laughs> that is a really good point, Sonia. Was that before or after Winter's Heart? Before. I get Knife of Dreams and Path of Daggers mixed up. So it's probably six or seven. I think Lord of Chaos is six. And I know that because I'm going to be talking about a character who shows up there. Okay. Yes. It, or it goes a Crown of Swords, Path of Daggers, Winter's Heart, Crossroads of Twilight. So Path of Daggers is number eight. Okay. Thank yep. you. Yeah. Yeah. No. And <laughs> thank you for calling that out because I probably should have taken that into account. <laughs> All right. So some of this information comes from the book series. Some of it comes from the Wheel of Time companion. And some of it comes from Origins of Wheel of Time. So Olivia is a former Demane from Shanshan. She was enslaved when she was about 13 or 14 years old. And she has been a Demane for 400 years. So at the time that she exists in A Path of Daggers, she is 414-ish years old, which makes her one of the oldest living people during the Third Age at the time that this is all going on. What we also learn about her is that she is the most powerful female channeler in the current age. The only two women who are more powerful than her is Lanfear and Semarag. And as we know, those are both Forsaken. And they lived thousands of years before she did. Now, yeah, they exist in when all of this is going down. But outside of those two, she's the most powerful channeler, making her more powerful than Nynaeve and Cad Swain and Elaine and Egwene, of course. And what is a trait about some of the more powerful channelers is that they are able to, re to reproduce weaves after only seeing them once. And this is a key point in the story because none of the Aes Sedai wanted to show any of the released Damane, those were who had their um, Adams removed. None of the Aes Sedai wanted to show them any of the weaves because they didn't quite trust them. Somewhat understandably, right? Yeah. But that didn't matter for her because as soon as she saw it, she could do it, which came in key whenever she goes with Rand and Nynaeve and the rest of the crew to go cleanse the taint. So where she enters the story in Path of Daggers is she was captured by Rand's forces during the battle with the, the Shanchan in Altara. And after she's captured, she's part of the crew of Damane that are sent to Elaine and Camelin. 
And so what happens in Camelin is that after a period of time where the Aes Sedai and the Kin feel like they can trust the Damane, they have their Adams removed. And so she had her Adam removed while she was in Camelin. Now, between Path of Daggers and Winter's Heart, which is book nine, is when in Winter's Heart, Rand and Nynaeve and I, I believe Lan as well, they, that's when they all go to farmatting, right? And Olivia decides she's going to go with them. And then once Rand gets imprisoned in far, in far matting, um, she then goes with men to get Cadswain. So Cadswain can come in and work her magic with all the council that is there to try to get Rand released. Fast forward a little bit farther in Winter's Heart is at, at the very end, it's chapter 35. It's at the very end of the book is when they cleanse the taint. So she goes with that crew to go do that. Um, and what's interesting during that battle, because there's that battle near Shatter Logoth, um, and we learn about this character named Sindane. And it's not very clear at first who Sindane is, but we eventually learn that Sindane is the, and that's C-Y-N-D-A-N-E, that is the reincarnation of Lanfear. And so this is how, after Lanfear has had her power drained by the Aelfin and the Eelfin. Um, so she's, she's not as powerful as she was prior to that. But when, um, when Olivia comes up, it's actually Sindane like sneaking up on Olivia in the woods. And she kind of sees Olivia as a wilder. So, you know, the women channelers who didn't go to the tower and did all that, they kind of turn them as wilders. Um, that's what Sindane sees her as. And they battle and Sindane recognizes the sheer amount of power that Olivia has and recognizes that Olivia has more power in her now than Sindane slash Lanfear ever had. Um, and keep in mind though that when this was going down this is also after Nynaeve gave Olivia her Tarangriel slash Angriel ring bracelet combo thing that she was wearing so she did have that going for her but she's still the most powerful channeler right so throughout all of this right so they go they cleanse the taint right Rand doesn't trust Olivia because she's a former Damane and he's got major trust issues with like so many people, right? Not to be blamed. I mean, I, yeah, it's justifiably so. <laughs> but what's really interesting is the change of heart he has. So Min has a vision of Olivia. And the way that the wording of the vision as she speaks it is that Min saw Olivia help Rand die. And that freaks everybody out. Again, understandably so, because if those are the only words you say, you know, you can't kill the dragon reborn. I mean, come on, man. So, but while it causes all of this distrust in all of these other people, Rand is like, okay, I trust her now. And that was the weirdest, like in reading through that in the books, that was the weirdest flip for me. And Forgive me, it's been a while since since I've read this part in the books, but whenever I was I was reading through it, you know, I, I kind of got over the initial shock of it because I was like, this doesn't make sense, Rand. What are you doing, man? But then I kind of saw it as perhaps he knew or had an inkling that 
Min's vision really didn't mean that Olivia was going to kill him or help him die. I kind of feel like he knew that he needed to trust her because she was going to help him on the other side of Tarman Guiding. What are your guys' thoughts? It's funny because that's not really how I interpreted it. It's been a while for me too. My interpretation was that Rand thinks that he has to die in order to defeat the Dark One. So he thinks that Olivia is going to help him do that. And in so doing, help him defeat the Dark One. And that's why he's on board with it. Yeah, I think I agree. I think the phrasing is very important there because she's not going to kill him. She's not going to hurt him. She's going to help him die. And he thought that he had to die. And in a way, he did. I mean, his body died, even if he, he moved on into Morden's body. He saw her as helping him through that last little bit in the last battle to be the sacrifice that he thought he was going to be. I also was convinced until I finished reading the books that she was going to be a dark friend. Not going to lie, I, I wasn't sure about her. I, I really wasn't. Yeah, I thought, like, he knows that she's going to help him die. He is on board with that because he thinks Ooh. that he needs to die. But I think she's going to be doing it for nefarious purposes. I could definitely say that. I was completely wrong, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if we know her reasoning. No. Like, she's still sort of a mercurial. We don't get a lot. Of, we don't do we do we don't get any like viewpoints from her perspective, do we? No, she really doesn't. She, I mean, that that's the perfect way to describe her is very mercurial. Not, we just don't know a lot about her mindset. But to your point, Fenya, I think that made her a very intriguing character is because it kind of gave that suspense feel to it. Like you didn't know exactly what this chick was up to until the end of the, until the end of the last battle, right? And so the way that she helps Rand die is she's the one there at the end giving him clothes and money to help him disappear after he quote unquote died and uh, is now in Morden's body and goes off to live his his new life right so that she did help him die as Rand and maybe she did something else too in that process that we don't know for sure that wasn't in the notes and didn't end up in the last book. I would be really interested to see to hear that. I don't know that that's anything we would ever know because, like, if if Robert Jordan had plans for her other than what was in the notes and what ended up in the books, we won't ever know. We have no way of knowing. Yeah, and he may have, or or he may not have. I think. Um, some some insight from um, origins of the Wheel of Time is the origin of her name. A-L-I-V-I-A sounds like O-L-I-V-I-A, Olivia. So it was chosen um, by Robert Jordan from the olive branches. So you extend an olive branch as a symbol of peace, right? Peace and victory. Um, but also that we also know that, um, Robert or, you know, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, cr Christian elements throughout the entire series, but so the olive branch was also, um, a symbol of, or it represented the peace, the internal peace brought by the Holy Spirit through baptism as a Christian. And so her name being chosen like that is intended to give, it, she gives Rand peace. 
as he goes through the quote-unquote baptism of emerging through the last battle and is has survived that and able to move on and live out the rest of his existence. And so maybe just through her name, that was that was the end of it. That was the intent. But knowing how many notes that man took, I bet you there's more. <laughs> there might be. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is just me. I can't imagine that he would have a character with a backstory like that and not have had a more complex plan for her. Not to say that what she does in the story is not complex, but like just there's so much in there that you could like mine for story and conflict just in her history in how long she's been alive. I feel like he probably internally, he must have had some more thoughts about what he could do with her. Not only has she been alive for 400 years, but she spent the majority, like all but the first dozen of her years, bound by the Adam mm-hmm. and used as a tool. Yeah, there's a lot to explore there. Yeah, she has no autonomy. And like that was one of, I don't think I thought she was necessarily going to be a dark friend, but I always suspected that she would, her allegiance to the Shanchan was going to be a problem. And knowing that Robert Jordan had intentions of writing further books, exploring Shanchan with Matt and Tuan, I wonder if Olivia had been intended to be some kind of olive branch between the Westlands and Shanchan. If she maybe got some autonomy of her own and started becoming her own, and she was able to maybe breach the gap between what the Shanchan know of women who can channel and what the Westlands know of women who could channel. And maybe there was something that was going to go there, but I don't know. Like, right. <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea. He wrote nothing about his intentions for those books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be, it would be really interesting to explore more of her life because like you said, Fenya or Dahl, it's, she's been, she's had an Adam for 400 years. And one of the th- reasons that Rand doesn't trust her at first is because whenever they brought her to Camelin, she didn't immediately denounce being a Damane or the Soldam or the Shantan or anything like that. Well, of course not. Because that's been her life. She hasn't, I mean, aside from her first 13 or 14 years or whatever, she hasn't known anything else. And that's such a, like, I can't even conceive of of that period of time living like that, really. It rewires the brain. Like, we know from, like, in a normal human lifespan, that kind of abuse rewires the way you think. And it can take years like I said, to have that autonomy back and becoming your own person. And she definitely didn't have that much time before the last battle. No, which is why it's really interesting what she does whenever she leaves Camelin and starts following, you know, that crew to formatting and then back to Shadar Logoth is she kind of appoints herself as Rand's unofficial protector of sorts. And we see sprinklings of that all through Path of Daggers and Winter's Heart, but then definitely once they are in 
tear after they've cleansed the taint and he's like recovering. She's like outside his door protecting him. So he, while he's recovering from doing that. And the reasoning that she gives is because she's doing that because he is the one that freed her. So again, it's very almost the way, the way she behaves and she takes up that mantle almost has a, like an Aiel feel to it. Kind of a Gia Toe kind of thing, but she's obviously not Aiel. But to her, it may just be that she may not know what to do with herself. And she sees him as a figure of power and she's like, I'm, I'm going to stick with that guy. Because like, even the Shanshan had prophecies of the dragon and what he meant to the end of times. So she was able to sort of transfer that authority from the Soldom onto him. Mm. And I, I keep using the word, but she had not fully realized her own autonomy. So she was just replacing the, the need to be controlled and manipulated by placing the authority on somebody else. I think that scans with like the way abusive victims are deal with coming out of an abusive relationship and trying to become their own person again. That's how I interpreted it as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Totally not a clean break or transition. I don't know how to do this gracefully, but that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I don't know how you go from that. So I could not pick one of these ladies without the other, and that is Bane and Chiad. For those who don't remember or don't know, um, Bane and Chiad are two spear sisters, maidens of the spear. They are Aiel. Chiad is the Stone River Sept of the Goshen Ale, and Bane is from the Black Rock Sept of the Sherard Ale. I think I said that right. I'm not entirely sure. I wouldn't know if you said it wrong, so. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Goshen Road around here, and that I always think of Bane and Chiad when I see that, because I can't remember which one's which. (laughs) But anyway, they're two uh, maidens of the spear, but they're, they're from rival clans. Like, they have blood feuds between them, so... The two of them were so close in order to protect each other, they they bonded as first sisters. So they sort of move as one. And at one point, even Matt Clint, like when he he first meets them, he's trying to get them alone. And he he complains that he can never find one without the other. <laughs> <laughs> because he can't, he wants to flirt with them, but he can't ever get them alone. And I think they have a little bit of fun teasing him. And I, I think it was those two that were the ones that asked him if he wanted to dance. And somebody else had to explain to him what it meant to dance with the maiden in the spear and that he didn't really want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> was it also them that wanted to play the kissing game that wasn't a kissing game? Yeah, like with the Usquire something. It was like a spin the bottle type game. I think so. Was that I, I think too? it was a kissing. Maybe. I think it was It was that whole group. We are first introduced to them and I wasn't as diligent as you were. I don't remember what book this is in, <laughs> but they came over the spine of the world searching for the car Karn because they had heard the rumors that he had returned and they were looking for him. And they encounter Egwene, Elaine, and Nynaeve when they were out doing whatever the Wonder Girls did at that point in time. <laughs> this was after they had left the tower and before Tear, I think, or maybe it was right after Tear because she had, no, because they went to Tear after that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember. I am really bad at timelines. <laughs> but they were in a group with Avienda and a couple of other maidens. And one of them was injured and they were seeking help because they were lost. And they sort of surprised our Wonder Girls. And they became very close at some at a point in time with Avienda. Bane and Chiad became close with Vale, mm-hmm. which was interesting since 
I don't know. I guess they're the only people who like Pam besides Pam. <laughs> I was going to say, presumably Perrin likes his wife. Yeah, I guess he does. Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if his wife likes him. That's also true. <laughs> so they start following her around and become her own little maidens, especially when they get captured by the Shido. And when they're captured by the Shido, they, they both become Gaishan. Well, I guess they all become Gaishan, but Fail really shouldn't have been because she's not Aiel. She doesn't follow Jito. And they were not happy about that. But because they kept their own honor, they would happily became Gaishan. But before that, they also met up with one of the other Aiels that was running around with Matt. And that was Gaul when they went to the two rivers. And I guess he was went with Matt at that time. He was with Perrin, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think Gaul had a little crush on, I think it was Chiad or Bane. I, I'm still, I'm getting them mixed up again. I can never remember which one's which. They are kind of interchangeable. They really are. <laughs> this is why I can't talk about one without the other. They, they are like, they're so close that they are the same person almost. And it's, it's, it's Chiad. Chiad. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It is in my notes that he falls for Chiad. And he, he keeps waiting for her to her make a bridal wreath, which if you know the Aiel, the, the woman asks, especially the maidens of the spear, because they have to give up the spear to bed a man, are going to lay a wreath at the man's feet. And that's, and of course, Chiad isn't going to do that for Gaul unless Bane does it with her. <laughs> but anyway, they get taken Gaishan by the Shido, and then they come in, and Gaul and the other, the band, with Matt come in and, and pa- Matt and Perrin come in to rescue him. Gaul ends up rescuing both of them at some point and th- throughout the, the battle with the Shido and kills the woman or the man or woman who took Bane or one of them. So she becomes Gaishan to him automatically because the obligation transfers to him as the victor in that. It's an Aiel rom-com. It is. It is. It's like a rom-com. Now the two of them are like purposely, like almost maliciously being subservient to him (laughs) to the point that he's like not sure what he got himself into. (laughs) Like they're just like falling all over to like, is this how you like it? Or is this good? Are are we good? Good, good guy, (laughs) Sean? He's just like stop. <laughs> but I love those two because they're like I don't I don't think they're like integral characters, but they offer such good comic relief. <laughs> they are comic relief, and like you said, it's like a rom com. I mean, if, if Amazon ever wanted to expand Wheel of Time into like an extended universe. I think there's an argument there that they could make this into like a rom-com to draw in the rom-com viewers, get them kind of like dip their toes into Wheel of Time. Oh my God. So it's a rom-com sitcom a la Friends. Mm -hmm. And so we have Bane and Chiad and Gaul, but then we have to bring in Matt somehow. He's Joey. Yes. (laughs) Matt would be Joey. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Perry would be Ross and Fail would be Rachel. Oh my god. They were on a break. They were on a break. They were totally on a break. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> 
Oh, oh my god. Better. Okay. Okay. I, th- I think we just discovered a new panel for DernCon. Uh, yeah, we might have to pitch that one. Maybe next year. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, their story ends. They they actually before Gaul goes off to fight in battle, they made him some extra sharp spears because they didn't think his were good enough and they didn't want him to die and hurt himself on his poorly made spears. <laughs> That's very considerate of them. It was very considerate yeah. of them. In a very backhanded way. <laughs> <laughs> they did eventually make a wreath for him, right? At the end of the books. Or were they talking about what wreath they would make? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Now I can't remember. I should have looked that up. I know they talked about it because they talked about what they were going to put in the wreath. Or am I mixing up Avienda and Elaine and Bane and Chad talking about Ran? I, now I have to look it up. I should have looked this up earlier. Um, oh, it's in the Tarvalin.net library. Yeah. And after the Battle of Malden... She beat that's where that's where she becomes Gaishan to Gaul and considers making him a bridal wreath once she puts off the white. Yeah. They can't do it while she's Gaishan because that's not appropriate. That's right. That's right. And but Bane would have to agree with her. So I knew I knew they talked about it because they talked she talked specifically about what type of flower she put in it, and they were ones with prickly thorns. Oh, the wreath. The wreath. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, she was going to put that's flowers right. that had thorns in them because <laughs> <laughs> she was going to be a thorn in his side. So sassy, <laughs> but those two, I just love them so much, and like they really can just be left out. I don't oh know that we're going to see them because they, as far as plot goes, they don't offer anything to the overall plot other than being like comic relief and a little bit of world building. But it would be so much fun if they. <laughs> I do, I, I do think the comic relief that they provide helps out. It, they're not, they're not present in abundance like during the slog, but the comic relief that they do provide during that time helps a lot. They're the only things that made those chapters readable. <sighs> they helped. <laughs> they helped so they much. Helped. <laughs> <laughs> but no, those are the. I love, I love in your notes how you put that they were um, two sassy sisters of the spear. Uh-huh. And I don't think there's a better way to describe those two. <laughs> I love how you describe them. <laughs> there really isn't. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, that's about all there is on them. There's not a whole lot, but I, I, I love them so much. Yes. <laughs> all right, Fanny, you want to jump into your character? Yeah, so on... Unlike both of you, I didn't choose a character that I love unreservedly. Yeah. <laughs> I chose a character that I have really mixed feelings about, namely Tylan. She is the queen of Altara, uh, the capital of which is Abu Dar. And I'm going to be very honest, until I started looking up information about her for this episode, I did think Abu Dar was the country. <laughs> So, <laughs> if I remember correctly, her power does not really extend that well past Ebudar. Like, yeah, I got the impression that she was mostly contained to Ebudar, but also, again, still, I thought Ebudar was the country and that it was not part of a larger place. So, you can see how well I read those books. I think the people of Otara might also agree that <laughs> she's the queen of <laughs> But yeah. Yes. So she first appears in Lord of Chaos, which is book six, I believe. Her last appearance is Winter's Heart, which is book nine. 
She has one living son, Beslin, about whom she cares very much. She has a couple of dead children who don't really focus or appear in the story at all. So I'm not going to mention them beyond this. Um, in order to ensure that Beslin succeeds her on the throne of Altara or Ebudar, she agrees to swear fealty to the uh, Shanshan. And so she starts like painting her nails. I don't think she ever gets around to shaving her head, but she like she starts going through those motions. And now, trigger warning, we are going to be talking about sexual assault. So if that is something that you are uncomfortable with listening to or have no interest in listening to, we completely understand it's a heavy topic and you probably will want to skip probably the rest of this episode because I don't think there's going to be any content after we talk about Thailand. So the reason why I wanted to talk about her is because, like I said, I'm just really conflicted about her. Reading the book when I did in like 2020 made me very uncomfortable the way that she treats Matt because it is coercion, it's rape, it is not funny, and I'm not sure if we're supposed to find it funny or if it, we're supposed to think that it's bad. But like even after, so she makes her interest in him very clear. And from the get-go, we see from Matt that he is not interested. And he, like, says that. He he refuses her. He She knows that he is not interested. But she continues to pursue him. Like, she invites him to dinner. And when he doesn't have dinner with her, she tells the kitchen not to provide him any food unless she unless he eats with her. She lets herself into his room to sleep with him. She molests him in public by, like, kissing him and pinching him. No question about it, she is in a position of power over him because she's the queen. She also, just in terms of physically, like, she is armed. She has a, a marriage dagger. And he's obviously, like, not wanting to attack someone, like, who is in this who who is politically more powerful than him. So he feels like he can't defend himself. And I know that Matt is an unreliable narrator and he doesn't really have the vocabulary to express how uncomfortable this makes him. So we don't really like get that. It's, it's very conflicted, I think, his, his perspective. I will admit, like, when I first read them 20-some years ago, and I felt differently than I do now, like reading them again, because the way the way we talk about consent and sexual relationships and power dynamics has shifted so much that I think that it's a conversation that had not happened yet. And I don't know that it was intended to come off the way it did. And it does. Yeah, I like when these books were written, definitely the portrayal of male rape in media was very different and it was played for laughs really like it wasn't it wasn't a thing that we as a society thought about i did read a really interesting discussion or analysis of these scenes with thailand where the poster was making the argument that in fact robert jordan was actually making a commentary on this and he was he was using this situation to show that this is not okay i'm not sure how convinced i am but I like the thought. <laughs> I 
I like the idea that that was what his intentions were. I don't know that his mindset would have been there that time period. If he had been around today in writing them, I think maybe I would agree with you. Because I certainly think had he had those conversations the way we have had since his passing, he would agree. Although the the argument, I guess, could be made that a lot, not saying the series is not without its problems because it does, it has issues. but. Robert Jordan was also ahead of his time in several of the topics and the the way that he wrote his characters and especially the the female characters. Again, not perfect, but he did write his characters in a much different way. And so I think it's plausible that the poster that you read about Fenya, I it it could it could be commentary on that. Because like like you, Doll, whenever I first read it, it did not bother me as much as it now does. If Jordan did write it as a commentary on the, yes, you have all of these extremely powerful women, both female rulers, in addition to Aes Sedai, and thus far, they've all been painted as, for the most part, minus the forsaken, benevolent, right? Regardless of gender, not everyone in power is going to be benevolent. And so he was he could have been providing some insight into, yes, here's all this goodness over here, but there are also going to be women who abuse that power. And this is the vehicle he chose to show that, unfortunately. I could also see him like wanting to use this as an attempt to to portray that message and just not being successful because Whenever this book came out, I didn't look at the publication date. Uh, 1994. Well, Lord of Chaos came out in 94. So 94 to 2000, which was when Winter's Heart was published. Presumably, he wrote Winter's Heart, you know, a year before it actually came out, at least. He wouldn't necessarily have the vocabulary to talk about it because we weren't having these conversations. Yeah. And I think there may be some truth to it, if not like, in the way that we view it now, he was, and the most of Wheel of Time is turning the power structures of our modern society on their head and examining them. So even if he wasn't explicitly saying this is example of how we mistreat women as men in power, he was at least mirroring what happens a lot of time to women when men have power over them, if not consciously making it as a critique, at least he was mimicking and mirroring it. Because when I first read it, it played off more in the same way I used to view something like Pepe Le Pew when I was growing up. It's literally just the same. And growing up, it just seemed like a silly little cartoon skunk chasing a cat that didn't want his attention as an adult who's gone through and had these conversations and broken down the ways that these cultural cliches stick in our brain and our psyches, I understand now that it probably led me to put myself into situations where I didn't have agency over myself when I was in similar situations. And that's not healthy and not good. But we weren't having those conversations in the 90s. Nobody ever said that to me when I was growing up. So I didn't know, and I didn't know that I could stand up for myself, and I didn't know what to do at that time period. So, like, now, looking back on it, I can't watch Pepe Le Pew. It's gross. And in the same way, I can't watch Tylen and Matt, or read about Tylen and Matt. 
without feeling the same way. And it is putting it on its head. So like, even if it wasn't necessarily his intention, I think there was a little bit of that on like flipping it on its head. And it was maybe intended to come off as a little bit lighthearted, but it is more deeper than that. And 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 to Robert Jordan's credit, I think that if he was writing it today, it would have been very different, and it would have been much more explicitly a bad thing rather than than played for laughs. I absolutely agree. Like I, I do think that he tried to be thoughtful about what he included in the series, and he wasn't he wasn't always successful, of course not. But I do think that this is one aspect where he would have written something very different if he was writing 20 years later. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Everything I know about the man, I only met him twice and only in a, as a part of a larger group. Not, I never had any personal, but having heard through my relationships with Maria and Harriet and Alan, the kind of man he was and his family, because he just would have, I think, had we have had those conversations or if he had been written, right, written them today, he would have probably been where we are now and we would have had a different perspective. I think we, we maybe, maybe have gotten a little less of ambiguity from Matt's point of view and a little more explicit how he felt about it. Because in the end, I don't know that Matt necessarily didn't want it. I just think it happened in a way he was uncomfortable with. And he wasn't fully able to express it. Like, I, it's hard to know without saying it. Because in the end, he did miss it. But how much of that was because he actually wanted it and he was being unreliable in his head? Or how much of that was the, uh, what do you call it? Like Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. My my impression, and Matt is a very unreliable narrator, so there's your mileage may vary here for sure. My impression is that he did not want it but he did form a relationship with her, not of his own volition. And he he cared for her in some respects. He certainly didn't want her to die. Absolutely. Which I think we can all agree with. And he certainly <laughs> didn't want her to die in the horrible way that she does. But I don't think that that's because he genuinely had any interest in in having this relationship with her. I think it's it's because he had been in forced proximity to her. And he had very mixed feelings about that as one does. Yeah. Let me ask you guys this question. Do y'all think that if Robert Jordan was writing this today, and this is total speculation and totally like, you know, trying to dive into the mindset of the author, right? Do you think he would have made it more, not graphic, but like what, what you were saying earlier, Doll, about just more explicit about the intent? Or do you think he would have just written it out because it's such a taboo thing. I don't think he would stray from the taboo. I think he would have been more careful about how he wrote it. I don't think he would have written it out because of the taboo. I think if he wrote it, it would have been intentional. He he would have wanted to deal with the consequences of it. But I think he would have to think about whether or not to include it because it would have ramifications on Matt's character if he was to write it today. Like you, the way that it happens, it it kind of is contained to these books, and Matt doesn't really think about it afterwards that much. I think I think that it would that would be more explicit 
like we would see more of him processing what what he went through if he was to include the storyline writing it today. I would argue it informed his relationship with Tuan a lot and it would be more explicit. In my mind, I would like to think that it would still be included, but to each, to each of your points, it would just be a little bit, the intent would be more explicit, the aftermath, Matt processing it. But it would even be interesting because of Matt's, his personality and the way that he just processes things in general. Um, you think about the other traumatic events that he goes through throughout the books, like losing an eye. You know, that's going to be fairly traumatic. But And maybe we just don't get a whole lot of insight into Matt's, the way Matt processes things because it's Matt. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we actually do because I don't think we really spend a lot of time with Matt talking about how he feels about having lost an eye. Yeah. No. And after this this happens, he's only in one more book that Robert Jordan wrote. Because like the building fell on top of him. And then we don't find out for another whole book what happened. So after that, we get the knife of dreams. And then that's when Robert Jordan died. So a lot of that processing wasn't necessarily fleshed out if he had any plans for it. And I think even Brandon agrees that he did not handle Matt very well. I feel like when Sanderson took over, it was a brand new Matt. It was a completely different Matt. Yeah. Uh, he's even said that in interviews that he did not get Matt right away. And if he could go back and redo anything, I think he'd redo Matt's point of view. Because he didn't fully understand him. I don't think he can because Matt is like the polar opposite of Brandon Sanders. <laughs> like in every possible way. I was going to say, I would be really interested to see Sanderson's like redo on Matt. One, because maybe I might actually like Matt now. But two, <laughs> to exactly what you just said, like Brandon Sanderson trying to write Matt the the gambler, right? I don't know. That'd be really, that'd be really different. I just know that when I got to those books, I spent a lot of time texting Diana saying, what the fuck is Matt doing right now? This is not the Matt that we have come to know. Matt doesn't know at this point. (laughs) No, and there are certain scenes that I think aren't as obvious who wrote them because I I do know that like there are parts of the books that were wholesale lifted from uh, the rough drafts from Robert Jordan that people might be surprised were Matt point of views that they thought were Brandon's, but I think they were rough drafts and the, I think that the editing of them is what lost the character of Matt and made him so different. Like, I well, don't know that we'll ever know how much of it is the difference between Brandon not understanding Matt and what happened in those books leading up to it that changed Matt forever. Cause I think there is some of it that I think he did change permanently from everything that happened. I mean, how could you not? It it's it would. It would change you. I would have liked to see a more, I guess, direct correlation with that. And I think we lost that. And it I don't know that it would have happened if Robert Jordan had finished his story arc, but I don't think we would have gotten it with Brandon because I don't think Brandon has the experience to understand or process those kinds of subjects like i'm not saying he's an innocent 
little boy, but I he he you know, he grew up in the Midwest. He's had one relationship, and he hasn't had to deal with the kind of trauma and very different life experiences. A very different life experience than Robert Jordan had. Mm-hmm. So, like writing from that perspective of a war vet dealing with the loss of his eyes, dealing with assault, and the dealing with betrayal from someone that had authority over you uh, are not in his wheelhouse. It's just he doesn't have the experience to write it. So that was my thought on Tyler. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, whoa, we went, we went from goofy being enchanted <laughs> to, to that. I love that you picked Thailand to talk about, Fenya, because it is different going from Bane and Chad to Thailand, but it's just a much deeper discussion. Yeah, I just when you said talk about a character, a secondary character, that's immediately who my mind went to because I have these very complicated feelings about her, her plotline with Matt, how that all, you know, intersects, how it was written. And so more than any other secondary character, Tylen is the one that I linger on. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting storyline that did not get the justice it deserved. Like, not because Tylen is a particularly likable person, but I think there are certainly interesting dynamics there where she could have been more interesting if it hadn't been for everything else. Yeah, and and I think it's very valuable to have a storyline with male rape because so often it's not treated with the respect that that storyline deserves. I'm not saying that this one was either because we have just had a whole debate about it. So clearly not. But I I think it's worth examining it and seeing it in fiction because it is a thing that happens. And if we just gloss over it, then we gloss over it in real life too, or we are more likely to gloss over it in real life too. Gloss over it or make light of it. Exactly. I think it's important conversations to have. And I think it's important to be critical of our darlings because we're different people than we were 20, 30 years ago. And I hope that we've all grown and sometimes the media doesn't hold up entirely. Mm -hmm. And I think that just because you are critical of a thing you love doesn't take away from the fact that you love it. It doesn't take away from the value of it. It just means that you are looking at it with clear eyes. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to our discussion of some of the uh, more minor characters in The Wheel of Time. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to, us to talk about, feel free to send us an email to producer.tvt at gmail.com. Or you can join us on tarvalin.net. In our general forums, we have a special thread part called Tarvalin Talks pinned at the top of the page. You can also chat with us via tarvalin.net Discord server in the Tarvalin Talks Discord channel. See you next time.